Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello. Uh, David, you and I both had interviews on today's episode, um, but let's hear about yours first. You got on the line um, with Sarah Polly, the writer and director of Women Talking, who you've talked to many times throughout the season ever since it premiered at Telluride way back when. Um, but this time she was joined by Frances McDormand, who is the producer on the film. She's a nominee for Best Picture uh, and also has a small role in it. Um, what a dream team. What a dream team. Um, yeah, it was very kind of a meta conversation. It was very much about covering this movie and the kinds of conversations that I've had with um, both of them, with the rest of the cast and the conversations that they've had uh, over the course of many months <laughs> uh, campaigning for this movie. Uh, some which have been more frustrating than others, let's say. Hmm. Uh, I don't want you to give too much away, but I mean, how are they how are they feeling overall about what it's been like to shepherd this movie through the world? Um, one of my favorite anecdotes from this particular interview is Sarah Polly describing the many flights back and forth she's had to take, uh, you know, just on the campaign trail, especially because she lives in Canada. So she's going through customs a lot. And, you know, telling people, you know, in the airport, why she's coming (laughs) into the country. (laughs) Then they ask what the title of the movie is, then she tells them what the title of the movie is. And there's usually a kind of a sigh or an eye roll um, (laughs) that she has found increasingly (laughs) Frustrating, very understandably. Uh, I like to think that there's a bunch of customs officers who have become fans of the movie, though, because now they're aware of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's been the big challenge has been getting people to overcome that very immediate bias and just get them to actually see the thing. And clearly, that was the challenge with the uh, Academy. And fortunately, enough people saw it to get it nominated for Best Picture. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's been an eye-opening experience for both of them in different ways. Uh, well, let's hear all about it in your conversation with Sarah Polly and Francis McDormand. 
Sarah Pauly and Francis McDormand, thank you so much for being here. Oscar nominees for Film Women Talking. Hi. Hi, Hi David. Uh, I'm loving the cozy podcast where we've got going here. <laughs> flannel, <laughs> flannel, plaid flannel all the way. We are matching. It's sort of weird. It's like a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> the women talking uniform. Yeah, it's the Hayloft uniform. <laughs> Um, well, let's get into it. Uh, this film is nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Fran, you are a producer and screenplay for you, uh, Sarah. Um, Sarah, I wanted to start with you. You'd mentioned via Twitter uh, on Oscar nominations morning that expectations were low. That was your phrasing. And I'm I'm just curious about how you experienced this campaign, experienced the rollout of the film, getting it in front of the industry, people like me. Um, and and what it was like when you got to that moment and it was recognized. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole production from beginning to end has been somewhat of an emotional roller coaster on all levels. And so weirdly, it felt like in keeping with the entire spirit of the project that there were these highs of expectations and lows of expectations and then big, lovely surprises and then surprises dashed. And, you know, like, I think that was sort of just part of the trajectory of this film. I mean, I don't think any of us sort of went into this talking about Oscar nominations or that it was ever front of mind. So, I mean, I've just sort of experienced the whole thing as joy and delight and this shiny toy that, you know, you try not to get too attached to because, you know, it's it. there's so many factors and it's so hard to know and predict these things. But ultimately, for me, what the experience has, and I, I speak only for myself as someone who does this, you know, every 15 years or so, if I'm lucky, <laughs> it's, I get to meet a whole bunch of really interesting people that I'd never get to meet otherwise and be in rooms I wouldn't get to be in and learn from other writers and filmmakers. And that, that's been really exciting and great. So I, I wouldn't say um, the experience has had any disappointments for me of this, this end of things anyway. Fran, you've been on this uh, merry-go-round a few times, let's say. And the task for, you know, a movie in an, in an awards context, whatever you want to call it, is to get the industry to see and embrace a film. Um, what stood out to you about that experience uh, and the way this was received uh, in the industry, your industry, both the good and maybe a little bit of the bad? That's such a wide-ranging question and, and, and one that I think we... Why don't you write a book on it, David? Because now's the time. Yeah, you might be I right. Think that, I think that... You've got to give me a longer interview. <laughs> a little longer. I'm, I'm ready, baby. Here's the thing about... I mean, I'm certainly no expert. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 65 and, and, and have been in the sandbox for a little bit longer. But when I look back on this particular part, we, our family calls it the convention going to the convention. Sure. The first time, the ma- first major time that we went as a family, a couple days before, a friend of ours was doing a car show. He directs ad, you know, kind of does big uh, kind of convention things. And it, he had just done a car show at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And then the next day, we went to the Oscar show at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And we were both like, oh my, this feels really similar. Hmm. Kind of get rolled out. The shiny things get rolled out. Yeah. They put on little spin, get put on little spinning carousels and then roll back into the garage for the next time. So there, just to p- keep it in perspective, it is 
a convention and it's a TV show. So I think we're talking about two different things, aren't we, David? We're, we're talking about the exposure that a film has and the kind of the kind of a campaign that a studio hopes to give a film mm-hmm. so that it gets more exposure with an audience. And then there's a whole other thing. Yeah. But I think that what I'm really interested in is exactly what Sarah's been talking about. This extraordinary conversation that starts happening, filmmaker on filmmaker, because they don't get to see each other. It's like uh, Joel's met more filmmakers through me than he ever has through being one. So that the idea that they actually get to gather in the same place and kind of interrogate each other is extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, and it's something that happens over the course of the season. Sarah, you just did the Santa Barbara Writers Panel where you're with a real range of filmmakers. Some have been in this industry a long time and some who have really had a major breakout this year. How have both of you, I suppose, in, in this particular cycle, found those kinds of conversations just in terms of like big things like state of the industry, state of movie making? How has that been? I mean, I've loved it. I feel like I've learned a ton about writing from getting to have these conversations with other writers and a lot about directing from getting to talk to other directors. Um, there is this weird thing that happens, though, between what they call phase one and phase two. See, I'm like learning the lingo now. But like, you know, in the fall and you sort of like you're with everybody mm-hmm. and there's this sense that that's going to go on forever. And then suddenly phase two happens and certain people aren't in their room. Right. And, you know, this year for me, you know, personally, in terms of the connections I made, you know, all the black female filmmakers are gone. Yeah. So that that's a really startling moment where you go, oh, like this isn't, you know, there's obviously problems with this as well, like pretty, pretty glaring ones. So um, it's amazing to have like developed those relationships, um, both with the filmmakers in the fall and, and filmmakers I'm hanging out with now. And, and that's really wonderful. But, but what you find out, which I did, again, didn't know, is when you get a best picture nomination, it has a huge impact on the way people talk about a film, on how many people are seeing your film. And so it also, because of, you know, what you've seen other people going through in this process, it also becomes really glaring that not everybody is getting that and who's not getting that. And, you know, that becomes a conversation that's also really important to have. Whether you put stock in awards or not, it has this very real impact. Um, Absolutely. And and everyone involved in the film. So all of those crew people in terms of when they go into their next job interview, that's had a huge impact on on our crew. And then, again, other people have been left behind. And so it becomes a really complex conversation, I think. Yes, and one that needs to be had and a really fascinating one. So much more fascinating than one that we have been having for 95 years. One wholly expects a conversation to evolve. So I think just reading out the list of the Best Picture nominees gives you an idea of how perhaps that conversation has not altered enough. And evolved enough over time. You, we don't even have to comment much past that. If you just say them, just read the titles of those nominees. It's <laughs> fascinating. So Jungian, if we wanted to go there. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think one of the things that Sarah is saying is that it's also, you know, think about when we first started and we first started talking, right, in, in a film festival in the mountains of Colorado. You know, the film festival starts this conversation and starts this kind of extraordinary um, kind of international uh, Mm -hmm. 
fireworks displays, right, that are happening in front of audiences. They're not just happening in the industry where we're talking about and patting each other on the back or we're getting to know each other over a cocktail. It's in, an, in a room with like 800 to 1,000 people experiencing your movie. That's right. Right, Sarah? I mean, yeah. we really didn't know what Woman Talking was until we saw it with 1,000 people. Yeah. And I mean, it, that has been, I mean, the great joy of this experience is getting to have those conversations, you know, with people like yourself, where the conversation's actually gone on for months. Like, I've been talking to you about this movie on and off We've for months, and that conversation changes, and yes. it evolves, and then it starts to encompass other things and other things that are going on in the world. And, you know, that's been, that's been thrilling. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. Fran, I remember in Telluride, one thing you'd said that really stuck with me was you haven't seen this before because it hasn't been explored before. Um, And the movie did feel radical when I saw it the first time. How have you found the conversations around that part of it? And just around, how did you find the experience of making it in that regard? Like something that did feel incredibly new and incredibly, I would say, groundbreaking. Well, just that statement alone seems kind of sad, doesn't it? That it's groundbreaking to have a title a project, talking. Yes. You know, and a and a, a project that's female led and female centric and the female storytelling and that many women in one frame. I remember that I've had two I I was thinking about this just purely from a the impact that it makes from a storytelling point of view for an audience. I was at a a playwright conference, the O'Neill Playwright Conference, right after I got out of drama school. So this is like, you know, late 80s, mid 80s, 1980s, not 1880s, mid 1980s. And there was a play on stage that was, it must have been a Greek play. I don't really remember, but it was all females. And I remember sitting there and just kind of being out of breath, seeing 12 women occupying a stage. And everybody kept saying, isn't that amazing how powerful that is? Isn't that amazing? Look at that. Isn't that amazing? A bunch of women up there. Wow, that's a different thing. It was like, yeah, well, wow, because there's a lot of women in the world. Why do we find that so, so kind of strange and theatrical? And then I was in a film at least 25 years ago uh, that was – a female-centric story and almost all women. And I remember when the experience of doing it was much different than the experience of seeing it. Seeing the film, I realized how difficult it was for the filmmaker, who was a man, the editor, who I believe was a man, but I don't want to be held to that, how difficult it was to find their focus in a frame because they... 
they had this whole kind of Congress of women, just like in the hayloft. But it was really hard to, there was so many interesting things going on. It's like, where do you land? Where do you land in this group? And I think it's one of the things that they never considered when they put the film together in the way that Sarah and Luke most certainly did. They knew exactly how to work with Sean, the, you know, the camera operator, to find and to keep more than one person in the frame because there was so, it was so full, right, Sarah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that sense of just connect, wanting to connect people all the time and, and shoot in an aspect ratio also that allowed us to do that. And, and just the idea that so many of these experiences these women are having are not isolated, but are directly sort of impacting each other was, yeah, it was fun to find that. And I think, I think that the, the, probably the best way to describe it visually, what that power is, is that very first shot when the agoji rise up from the grass and you go, oh, that's, that's what, that's what it means. That kind of power all rising up and having to face that. There's something really, really dramatic and theatrical about it. Yeah. And one of the things we just found out, I just sent um, Fran this email this morning, is that we keep getting reports now that all of these um, Mennonite women from conservative communities are going in droves to the movie theater, some for the first time in their lives, to see women talking and they're singing in four-part harmony along with the hymns huh. and they're standing up and screaming at the end and like bringing back more, there's more buggies in the parking lot every day. <laughs> and it's just, that has been the biggest thrill of a lifetime because we we were so conscious and so many of our conversations with Fran and Didi and I were about okay, we're telling this really difficult story about a community that's very misunderstood generally. How do we make sure we're honoring like the faith and not, this isn't a takedown of these religious communities. This is actually about a group of women figuring out how do you move closer to your faith in an authentic way? And how does that, you know, involve tearing down the to our hierarchical power structures around that faith, but how do we honor these women as much as humanly possible while telling this very difficult story? And so just the fact that it's being embraced by so many people in those communities or around those communities, and some of whom have direct cousins and relations in the colony. This happened and has been, for me, that's been the biggest thrill. I have to say, when I got those emails, the reaction was a lot bigger than when we got the Oscar nomination. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, the Mennonites don't hate us. I'm so thrilled. Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's exciting that it's, it's you know, they're, it's giving them a new conversation, right? Or, or just a place, just a, just a pride of place, giving them some kind of validation and affirmation of the way that they must be having conversations in their own community. Here's what I wish and wonder about. And maybe we could just, just for a second, it's not just about them. It's not, it is so, and, and one of, when Sarah, Sarah, you talked about this from, you know, step one, this is an, this is a parable for a larger world challenge, right? So we're, we are certainly, we, we, we hear daily about communities that are isolated and caught within their traditional rules in a way that is not allowing for any kind of, well, is, is, is killing speech, is killing the freedom of speech and the freedom of breathing, the freedom of loving, the freedom of thought, everything. So is it just, is it because we're not in, the, it's not propaganda, films aren't propaganda, we're not going to change the world. It's not a graduate course in, you know, 
sociology, but but it seems like it's getting narrower and narrower rather than, is it because not enough people are seeing it? Is it because algorithms are keeping only certain audiences in their own little niche and they're only seeing their same, the same movies? I mean, how are we supposed to change the complexion of the world, literally and figuratively, if people aren't seeing what we're doing? Hmm. And it's not yeah. like a w- broader conversation. And I think it's funny, like a movie... Yeah, and it's funny because like a movie like this, I think there's this assumption that like this is this is a film just for progressives, and it it truly isn't. I mean, I think that I was really conscious the whole time of like I need my, I need my right wing cousins to connect to this movie as well. Like this is this movie is about a place to speak about things and a place to move forward together on a kind of common ground and to hear each other and to be able to shift and change. Like this isn't for one group of people. It's not for people who are either secular or religious. It's for everybody. It's not for people who have a certain kind of politics or not. It's for everybody. Hmm. I mean, to both of your points, it does speak to a larger cultural problem that perhaps the movie is speaking to um, in that you see this title, this movie's title, and I think a lot was immediately put on this movie before it was seen Uh, in terms of who it was for, in terms of what its arguments were, even though when you see it, as you were saying, Sarah, it is hardly for one side of the aisle to be a little reductive about it. It is incredibly wide-ranging. Did you feel those kinds of, that kind of pushback at all in the rollout of the movie and just maybe just the making of the movie uh, that really had very little to do with the movie you were actually making? I mean, for me, the biggest eye-opener was whenever I went through a customs lineup. And it was literally every time I entered the United States of America, I had a male customs official, and he would ask me what my purpose of travel was. And I would say I was there with a movie, and they'd excitedly say, what's the movie? And I'd say women talking. And the sort of range of eye rolls, or I don't need any of that in my life. I got enough (laughs) in the basement. Like, it was just so extreme. And I finally kind of snapped one. after about this happened about 20 times. I finally, I think it was in Boston where I decided to put my stake in. And I just went, if I told you there was a movie called 12 Angry Men, would you go and see it? And he was like, maybe. <laughs> and I said, well, I just want you to sit with that. And he was like, do you want to have a conversation? I said, no, I want to get into the country. I just want you to sit with that. I want you to sit with that. And I sort of like was like yelling as I kept walking. And I just went, because it is a really interesting thing because it's not called women shouting. It's not called women scolding. It's not, not arguing. Called, it's not, it's called women talking. And we, we, nobody blinks at the, at the title of 12 Angry Men, which is a far more confrontational title. And yes. so it's a really interesting thing that I think we have to examine because I actually don't think it's just men that are responding to the title that way. I think I've heard awesome women I know go like, oh, I was a bit like grown. Yeah. I don't know if I can sit through this. It's fascinating. <laughs> there was a moment where I was nervous about the title and I was like, I don't know. I think maybe we should think about changing the title. Aditi was like, hell no. Are you no. kidding me? That is caving no. into misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know how to articulate this. I'm so glad that Sarah and Dee Dee and the other uh, the actors in the film have been practicing how to talk about this because so much of it me- leaves me speechless. Mm-hmm. I feel speechless. I feel like so- in in a way sometimes I feel like I've been the mu- the mute button's been pushed. I don't know how to mm. talk about it. I th- feel like I've been talking about it for fucking ever mm-hmm. and making big mistakes in public. You know, it's not about rules. It's not about it's not about um, numbers and, you know, optics. It's about 
a continuing evolutionary conversation. And organizations and clubs don't change things. The conversation amongst people changes things. And so I think that we have to, we, we really have to examine, I think, in our industry, how we, this part of the, this part of what we do needs to be examined because it needs to be about this. And it, and this happened during COVID. This happened a lot more. I dare yes, say this is when you started doing these, right? We mm-hmm. were all in our own little cubbies in our flannel shirts with our plants in the background. And we were talking about films because we couldn't let them go. We couldn't let that go. We couldn't let that die. And we ended up having the, the, the stupid convention during COVID, which was almost inappropriate. Maybe, maybe was inappropriate, but maybe. because we still needed it. It was still a part of the conversation. It was like, have you seen this? I can send this to you. We actually have access to this. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the drive-in or we'll, we'll put it online faster, but we'll keep having a conversation about it. And so there's something about that was a time of, and a possibility of, of changing the conversation. And somehow we're, we're leaning back on the old, the old tried and true a little bit too much. So I really... I think that's up to us. And also, kudos to you for doing that too, David. This is what has to happen. Get it outside. Get it Get it farther outside the industry. My glass half full brain also thinks of what you were sharing, Sarah, about Mennonite women just starting to see this movie in buggy droves. And, you know, something Dee Dee Gardner said to me last week, which is that Movies are meant to lead a long life, especially movies like these, and they don't get watched that quickly often. Um, But it does feel to me like this is a movie that, you know, from the cinematography, Sarah, that you have advocated for, to the topic of the conversations, the nature of the conversations, that it is a movie that should in some way be able to stand the test of time. Not to be too grand about it. But. No, it's, I mean, I mean, that's what's really great too about having producers like Fran and Didi who are so experienced and who have a better bird's eye view than, than I would at this stage. But just to go like, this is, a, this is about a shelf life. This is about pe- this movie living for a long time. And let's look at our favorite movies and how well they did at the box office in the first few weeks. And it's never good, you know, and most of them didn't get nominated for Oscars either. So it's like, I feel like, Certainly when I look at the films that influenced me the most, they're not films that would have, you know, been on any of those box office lists for sure. But it's it's been great to not feel the pressure from producers who usually get the most stressed about this kind of thing and right. to kind of go like, yeah, it would be great for more people to see this film. Absolutely. But we made a film for the long haul, not for just right now. And we're getting to have all these amazing conversations. It's not like what we wanted to get out of this movie isn't happening. And you know, a movie called Women Talking, having this kind of life and being nominated for an Oscar is also like a big deal. It shouldn't be, mm-hmm. but it, but it is. And it's it's uh, like, you know, that does feel like something. Yeah. The nature of the movie, which is women having this really rich, complicated conversation, also was, as we we're discussing, reflected in the making of the movie to some extent, especially between you, Sarah, you, Fran, and you, Didi. So, Fran... Uh, you've produced a few projects now. Um, what was unique about that experience, um, and what, and how it all may have it informed the way you want to go forward as a producer? I think I probably learned the most from this experience as a producer than I have in any other. So, 
I don't think it's any any secret or, you know, not 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 saying any uh, not teaching anybody anything about the industry. But, you know, there's a long, long tradition of actors producing. You can take that all the way back to the Globe Theater in London. Like, you know, Shakespeare was an actor. He wrote the plays. He produced the plays. He, you know, swept the stage. So I think in the film industry, there's the idea that uh, a movie star, which I've never thought of myself, but there, you know, I think that there's, you know, if you have any currency, let's say some, an actor with currency in the film industry gets to be, gets, is allowed to be a producer or executive producer or whatever, you know, associate producer, you get to be a producer, right? And I think in different, it varies with different people how they approach that, that position. Um, in the past, it was the reason why I was producing is that I, you know, I brought material, I, I optioned material, and then was a part of the development process. But it was to play a larger role in it. So I always had a larger role in the, in the thing that I knew how to do, which is act. I don't know how to produce. I don't know how to produce a movie like Dee Dee Gardner knows how to produce a movie. I, there's a reason she is good as she is because she's been doing that and knows how to do it, and she is, I believe, the best in the business mm-hmm. right now. What I learned about myself in the process is that you have to know when to stop. Actors don't know. We don't train ourselves to stop. We we go until. I wake, I still wake up thinking about ways I could make a role better. If I had only said that line, you know, 25 years ago, I got it now. I could get, (laughs) have another chance. But there is, there has been one consistent thing in everything that I've produced since, you know, for the last 12 years, somebody in the project has come to me and said, you have to stop, Fran. It's done. You have to stop. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) <laughs> oh, 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 okay, okay, oh, okay, I'm sorry, yeah, but, but wait, 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 one, one more thing, one more thing, what, what if we, what if we, what if we, right, <laughs> so I think that that's a huge thing that I learned on this, but also I think that I learned that the most important thing that I, that happened for me on this project, too, was that it allowed me to comfortably say, it's time for me to keep my mouth shut, sit back, and watch them go. Because Sarah and Dee Dee, we, we represent three decades in this film industry, not just as women, but as, as filmmakers. And they're our future. And so I think my, my most important role was trying to stay as quiet as possible and then waiting for somebody to ask me a question, which is not easy for me to do. You did it. <laughs> you trying did it. to continue. <laughs> Uh, Sarah Polly Francis McDormand, thank you so much uh, for the conversation. I hope you get we get to keep having conversations. They're really meaningful to me, so I appreciate it. Amen, brother. Thank you, and thanks for everything, David. And now let's go to the interview that I did. I talked to Pamela Ribbon, who is the writer and creator of the short film My Year of Dicks. Uh, and you call it creator because it started off as a TV project. And it's basically, uh, you know, their hope is that they can continue it as a TV project. It's a uh, nominated for Best Animated Short Film. It's a, a series of five vignettes taken from uh, Pamela's diaries when she was a teenager growing up in the early 90s. And um, David, I think we all know that uh, if there is a viral hit from this year's Oscars already, it, it's My 
my year of dicks, right? I need to know, did you ask her about <laughs> the, the Riz Ahmed moment? You know, there was so much to talk about. She has talked about it in other interviews. She talked to uh, Savannah Walsh here at VF about it. Um, you know, I think she's just proud to to have had their moment. And she has said, you know, she got her start as a, as a blogger for Television Without Pity, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think for those of us in this industry, we revere the work that was done over there. And she has said that she kind of learned from that, that you give something a good title and people will pay attention. And that's absolutely what has happened um and i because of that background i think i I think of her as like a real person like she's one of us and she made it so it was very fun talking to her about the nominees luncheon and about you know the the process of what it's been like she kind of described um her category and her role in the oscars as like holding on to the back of the bus of award season (laughs) um so she was she was a delight to talk to um so let's hear that conversation Pam Ribbon, uh, creator and uh, writer and uh, so many other things in my year of dicks. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me. And congratulations. How you doing? Um, I'm I'm great. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's great. This is great. I was just listening to earlier your Jamie Lee Curtis interview from the other week. And when she was just like, I'm just, this, just so smiley. Like, that is how I feel. I feel exactly <laughs> like that. Just so smiley. Um, I was telling before we started recording that I feel like I've been kind of experiencing your Oscar journey through some mutual friends, including Joe Reed, who was on uh, Little Gold Men recently, um, who was kind of sharing some of your photos from the Oscar luncheon, which is just like my favorite event ever to watch vicariously. Um, how was that? How was the Oscar luncheon for you? The nominees luncheon, I should say, for people. Yes, the nominees luncheon. Well, all of this has been I'm, I'm very fortunate that you can just say everything everywhere all at once. Everybody's like, mm, get it. Uh, yes, that is how it feels. And the, and the nominee luncheon in particular feels a little like you're trying to describe a dream to someone. <laughs> <laughs> because you turn around and you're like, well, hi, Tom Cruise. Like, it's ridiculous. I was standing in line with Jerry Bruckheimer getting checked in. And I just turned around and I was like, well, I know your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just... You can't uh, you can't go in with expectations, I think. But everyone that I knew that had any experience in this at all, who had reached out for advice, was like, "This this luncheon is so fun. Just go mm. have fun." Yeah. So I, I kind of entered with that. Well, you wind up with a really great spot in the group photo, which I don't <laughs> think you have any power over that. But no, uh, I have no it power was at all. I was really impressed. Um, how how was it being just like you're like where the Oscar is standing in some versions of this photo? Yeah, I had no idea. And I also didn't realize that no one else was like taking pictures of this moment. Like I was so excited uh, to show my mom and to show like everybody. I felt like I had all my friends in my pocket in my phone and I just didn't want anyone to miss anything. And yes, I think I didn't realize just how center I was until now when I've seen video where you can truly watch me have an out-of-body experience. I'm I'm at, I'm just doing the thing that people keep saying like take you know take it all in so there are moments like this where i'm like wow this is this is quite a moment in yeah. in your life i'm looking there's judd hirsch like i can see him oh yeah there's, he was right in the front he was right in front of me and i was just sort of in a moment of like oh my gosh my dad would have found all this quite impressive and amusing <laughs> and he would have been like I, I don't i don't even know i like when you're past what you can imagine for yourself i i do find myself just watching it like it's not overwhelming. It's it's whelming, right? You're just mm-hmm. like, wow, look at this moment right now that will never happen again that is happening right now. <laughs> and I was just filled with a lot of gratitude. And um, yeah, you feel very, I felt very present. Yeah. 
That feels like, I mean, I feel like so many people like say they go through this process and like they never really process any of it. So being present feels like a real victory. Well, all props to my therapists. But I, I, <laughs> I do think that that is something that having been adjacent to this experience before with, with movies. Like, like Moana and Wreck-It yeah. Ralph. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you know, my role in that is to is to hold and back up and get out of the way of these conglomerates and machines and and everyone that's being um, put forward. And in this case, you know, best animated short film, you just, you just really like, it's like, we have room in the back. And you're like, thanks. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> hanging on and going, wee. And um, so because of that, I, I really have felt the, the pressure off to be concerned about what is going to happen you know mm-hmm. I, um we this is insane to be here it's it's wonderful and so yeah it, take it all in is is easy to do when you feel like you've already gone past what you could ever have dreamed yeah I mean, I know you were a pop culture person. You kind of got your start blogging about movies and TV on the Internet like I did. I feel like I see you as a very aspirational story. I think many of us do. Um, but were you an Oscar kid? Like were were the Oscars an obsession in the same way that like Gilmore Girls was? Yes, I was an okay. Oscars kid. I okay. um, The biggest fight I ever had with my dad when I was small was uh, I was very upset that Bill Murray was not nominated for Best Actor in Ghostbusters. It made no sense to me at all. You, made- you I think there are people right there with you. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so even then I had a lot of opinions about these things. I, I, I watched them and rooted for them and would get very like opinionated about out of Africa. I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. And these are the, you know, whenever someone was telling their speech to the person at home, the young person at home that was watching and wondering and dreaming, like that really hit me back then. Mm. And hits me now, really. I, I I understand that that impulse to say, like I, I just lived m- lived my life, and here I am, and you can too. And yeah. and um, it does make you feel kind of connected to the whole big giant world in a way that, when you're small, you can only hope is a feeling you can have at some point. Yeah, there, I think it's the second segment in my year of dicks about like the art films where, you yes. know, I grew up in a small town in the South and it was like you would see these movies where you're just like, oh, that's what the rest of the world is. And like the Oscars yes. are a way into that in a way that I think is harder to understand now when, you know, everything's on Netflix. It's It, it was really a, a skeleton key for figuring out the world. Oh, sure. And also, ac- yeah, access. Right. So yeah. like you're saying now I could find 17 interviews that someone's doing about something and including like in their own home like here's how to you know put base on your face (laughs) you used to have to like read so many magazines to figure out how to put base (laughs) on your face um yeah so there is that there's that moment of I, I feel a lot of times because we're talking about a piece of filmmaking that is so based on stuff that happened to me and has images and people from my life that it there's a version of me that I'm carrying around to show this mm. to. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, look, me, it's happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I suppose that's all therapy, too. Like, my actual inner child is getting to go to the Oscars. See, see Judd Hirsch at the uh, nominees luncheon. Yeah, just be like, there's Steven Spielberg. He's just walking around. You know, he's just walking around. <laughs> Normally when Steven Spielberg is walking everywhere, anywhere, someone is like, Steven Spielberg is here. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, he was just walking around. 
In that context, he's like, yes. maybe the most famous person, maybe not. There's, there's a lot of competition in that room. A lot of competition. Yeah. Angela Bassett's outfit alone was major competition. <laughs> So on this podcast, we talk about shorts every year. We always watch all of them. But Thank I, you. it's always hard to get into the nitty gritty of why the shorts are made because it happens for so many different reasons in documentaries and from animated. And the fact that this started off as a FXS, uh, FXX, like part of their series Cake. And then I think you said that you asked to bring the film to festivals and that's mm-hmm. kind of why it didn't air on television. How did that pipeline happen? Why was that the path for this as opposed to kind of airing, I think, the way that we're used to seeing like short animation, which is on TV, the way it was intended to be? Well, it was never, it wasn't an either or situation. Okay. What had happened was, you know, there's a really long runway for film festivals. And so we knew we had to start entering if if we could even make like South By, let's say. Mm-hmm. So that was where we had our, our premiere. In, in 2022, last year. Yes, okay. around this time. Actually, the Oscars will be one year to the date right. that we uh, premiered at South By, which makes it truly my year of dicks. So um, <laughs> we, yeah, so we had to, we were not finished when we had to, when we started submitting, you know, I think we were just like, is this okay? It'll probably coincide with the show, with the, you know, with the film being on the show. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yes, of course, you know, feel free to see what you can do with it. So and it was then, really just you guys being like, hey, maybe we can let have more people see it or, mm-hmm. or like or just get it Oscar eligible. Like what what made it feel like festivals was the path? Oh, Oscar eligible was never in the initial <laughs> conversation at all, at all. Again, this is incredible. <laughs> but, um, you know, film festivals and shorts are how an independent animation, independent film. This is how you start to. I mean, I was new to this world, Mm -hmm. so this is how you can go out and meet people. You can talk about your film. You can start to talk about what you want to work on next and assemble your team. So it's, you know, an effective calling card and a reason to get to go to all these places you wouldn't normally get to go to. And I hadn't been to Annecy or Ottawa or any of these animation festivals before until I walked in. I was like, hey, I know people here. I'm working (laughs) with them. And it just feels a lot like I'm walking into a new room and learning something new to go from, like, television sitcoms to animated feature films at Disney to even just going to a different studio for animation. You're it's like, oh, it's mm. a whole new world. But then you open one door and you're like, oh, it's everybody from the last place. <laughs> oh, OK. So the world of Disney making Moana is not actually that different from people who are going to be at a film festival with their short form animation. Maybe not. Not at something like Annecy, where it is a lot of like Netflix is unveiling what they're up to. And, and when it is kind of um, slates being shown at the same time as independent up-and-coming artists are showing what they're doing you're you're all kind of it's a very small world animation um and we we all kind of circle around Mm -hmm. but i think in the case of independent animated artists they haven't often had the platform that the best picture or best animated short film offers um because it's been dominated often by a pixar disney Mm-hmm. DreamWorks Illumination short that goes in front of a film that, that airs and, you know, all every single person all around the yeah. world can see it. It's very hard to compete with something like that. So we are in a unique year where um, only Apple has a big, is the big studio in, in this category and everybody else is from uh, uh, all different countries around the world. Yeah. So then when the festival submission process starts, I mean, you guys travel all over the place. And I think you said that, like, the Flying Sailor and maybe some of the other nominees, like you were like 
all over the place with these people. Like you've gotten to know each other in that way. I yeah. mean, what what are you learning about your field and about animation and about the competition when you're bouncing around the world like this? Well, I learned that a lot of other countries uh, financially support their artists in ways that we do not. Every year, the National Film Board of Canada in the shorts category, they're all over the place. I was like, oh, huh. (laughs) Amazing how that works. (laughs) Yeah. And that is nice uh, to see. And it makes you realize this dominant culture that the Western culture can have over storytelling or who gets chosen or who gets to make things. Um, I mean, we all know it's it's unfair, but it's even more illuminated when you watch a, a country support an artist. It, you just see the difference in yeah. y- you're standing there representing so much and, mm-hmm. and that the country recognizes what you're representing for them and a chance for change. Sada, the director on, on My Year of Dicks, she's the first uh, female director nominated for an Academy Award from Iceland. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. And yeah. You know, within a second after the uh, announcement, there were like people at her door, you know, because she was in Iceland. And they were all like, <laughs> you know, I was like, are they bringing you a throne? Like, what is happening? They, she was on the news. It was, you know, I understand it's a size difference in sure. um, Iceland and Los Angeles, but it does feel like y- you, you, you feel, I mean, I can, I can watch her feel supported in a way that, mm. you know, we just hadn't had access to before. Um, I think Guillermo del Toro has said a couple times in his, you know, pro- process of Pinocchio, just very explicitly, like animation is a medium; it's not for children, which is something that in America, because of the way that we don't finance our arts, maybe is even harder to understand. I mean, you have made films that are, you know, for families and for children also, but was this was branching into animation in that way, doing something that was adult oriented, um, always a part of the goal for you? Like, did you kind of do? I mean, I guess was animation your goal for you in the beginning? Like, where what's, what's the path that got us to this particular kind of animated film that breaks a lot of our assumptions about what animation can do? In this case in particular, uh, yes, I thought I don't see a lot of adult animation that is targeted toward me. And I, I would say I didn't feel like I grew up with a lot of animation that was like, we see you, Pam. <laughs> Here's this thing you'll like. Yeah. And I, I genuinely believe that there's an audience for adult animation that doesn't necessarily have to be about violence or boobs. I guess I owe it all to Nickelodeon, but like <laughs> Turkey Television and all of those things, Pee-wee's Playhouse. This all felt like it's, it is geared towards kids, but not it's geared towards uh, senses of humor and weirdos. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I really appreciated. And I think when, when things get more and more quote unquote family, the focus on, um, being a weirdo, it changes. It's yeah. like, no, we're all, you know, you're all, you're all heroes. <laughs> makes these uh, flawless protagonists that are difficult to be aspirational. It's just difficult. You, who will ever, no one will ever be Anna. <laughs> but in any event, um, so when I was getting to do a piece that was, or, you know, I was being asked, would you like to make a piece of animation, maybe it can be your memoir. I thought, oh my gosh, you know. This is by this, FXX when you were having that meeting. Yeah. yeah. And this had happened in comic books as well. Um, when I'd been approached about writing comic books, I was like, well, I've, I've traditionally not been drawn to them. <laughs> I don't mean that pun. But because, <laughs> um, but I'd seen Chris Ware's work and and I was like, can I, as someone who doesn't draw, can, can I write in this space? Can I can I play here? And so my first 
um, graphic novel was My Boyfriend is a Bear, which is a, you know, a rom-com graphic novel. And then I did Slam, which was about roller derby. But I am always trying to make a story that I hadn't, you know, I'm not trying to pay tribute to the stuff that came before me. I'm trying to bring new people in. Yeah, I mean, because My Year of Dicks was on Vimeo. Like, it's very easy to find. But to be told where to find something that you might like, that is so much harder. And, yeah. you know, when you're doing, like, studio features, like, those are so widely marketed. But even something like Cake on FXX, like, I don't think I knew that there would be something like My Year of Dicks that would be on there that I would seek out. And I don't know what the solution for it is other than more visibility for things like this. I mean, you surely know people who are trying to fix this. You're sure. one of them. I mean, you know, and and we're watching animation get pulled all the time. I rem- remember when HBO Max was just building that animation slate. Just the idea of there, there it all is. You could just watch all of it and share it. And it had, you know, geeky niche stuff and then, you know, things that you were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I can just send this link to someone. And now, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 going away. Yeah. So I don't have any solutions, Katie. But I, <laughs> of course, I don't know what to do. But. The more that something like this can make a splash and can attract new people to to the, I mean, it's it's a tool. It's a cinematic tool for me. Animation helps eliminate that question of is this real mm-hmm. when we watch something. Um, we're very experienced in watching things at this point, so we do come at it with like, what am I supposed to figure out here? Is this real? Particularly, I think, in a story where someone is young and coming of age and experiencing something that perhaps the viewer has experienced before, it is very difficult to just put all of that down and still watch this feeling for the first time and tap back into the first time you felt this way. And animation very much lets you be in two worlds at once where mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're deep in here. But the you that was this, it just somehow rises to the top yeah. in, in ways that work so well. And, you know, and why we love Miyazaki films and why we love these these Disney films where it's like, I I am Judy Hopp sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, I, it, it really drops you right into, yes, today you're a bunny. And mm-hmm. you remember that first time you were a bunny and somehow you were like, yes, yeah. I remember, <laughs> remember this day. <laughs> So when you started working in the industry, was animation the path? Because you worked, you did had other jobs that were not involved in animation before you got there. So had that been part of your your goal when you started? No, I not no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, but it is a place that if you're funny and you write stories with a lot of heart and character, mm. that that w- uh, it was a world that opened up to me um, through Mary Coleman and Maggie Malone, who were at Pixar and, and Disney, respectively who had read a script of mine, my, like my first screenplay, that kept being the calling card for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I had met on other projects that I didn't get. You know, there wasn't, they only make one a year. <laughs> it takes a while <laughs> before before they're back around to you. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so what had happened with Moana was they, I, I just had a baby. And I have to say that that, it made me want to have a job that wasn't necessarily those sitcom hours of mm. your home, who knows when. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want to stop working at all. In fact, I pitched that whole year with like a pillow in my lap because um, <laughs> I knew I was going to deliver a baby around the same time that I would deliver a script when back when there was like real pilot season. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I um, I did. I delivered a script and a kid and then four wow. months later started at 
started at Disney Animation. And I and Frozen hadn't come out yet. So it was really like, what is this place and what's going to happen? What am I doing here? Yeah. I mean, what's so cool about My Year of Dicks is like knowing that that background got to it, that you work at Disney for a while. You're kind of in a room where your job is to tell a story that's personal to you, but like you are part of a team. You're part of like a much larger collective. And this is so very explicitly personal. Like, did you get to a point where you said, I want to do something that is more like specifically me? Is that always kind of where a career will lead for you? Like you would always, maybe that's something based on your memoirs, but would always be something more specifically your own? Yeah, I think so. Well, I, I, I do tend to start from myself, you know, when I think about the books I've written or even the comic book, like, you know, I was dating a guy and I was like, this guy might be a bear. And that is how, <laughs> that, is how that book came to be. Um, and I probably do that all the time, but I, I feel very comfortable when, uh, when I'm, I'm approaching a story in this manner. I, I'm not nervous to talk about myself. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, like people are like, oh my gosh, how could you? And I was like, I don't know how to not do this part. <laughs> I don't know how to not turn to Sada and say, I have like 18 hours of footage from my bedroom during this time. Would you like it? And she was, you know, one of the first people to ever be like, yes, please, all yeah. of it. Yeah. And she took it all and it all went in there. And that felt, well, as a, you know, emotional hoarder, that felt very <laughs> validating to yeah. see. I knew there was a reason I saved everything I ever wrote, but (laughs) now, now it's art. (laughs) Take that. But it's, um, but it is how I processed. I moved around a lot growing up. I went to 13 schools. This is my 30th place to live in where I'm sitting right now. And so I had this box of memories and things and people that I had kept with me all this time. Some were imaginary friends and some were real. And I had not really had a moment to create something about how that felt. Mm-hmm. People often are like, oh, why don't you tell the story of moving around a lot? And, yeah, and I was like, oh, it's, it's not a comedy. <laughs> 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 you know, and I also hadn't gotten to the other side. I still mm-hmm. haven't gotten to the other side of what that means. But with the m- memoir and even where I had gotten with um, my career and having a kid, I felt like, oh, I am I am on the other side of that time. And we sure didn't know that Roe v. Wade was going to be repealed while we were working on that. And yeah. and that sort of put it in a different perspective as well of um, this is now, a, you know, a period piece. Like you can't, yeah. you can't just go do this right now if you're 15 mm-hmm. in yeah. Texas. So yeah, I, I, I do start from how do I hope I can make someone feel and what do I wish I, what do I wish I had at the time mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that this protagonist is? Or what is? It's not even a lesson. It's just like, what do I wish I could have felt? So it all starts kind of from that similar place, but this is the most of it that's made it to the screen. Maybe like this is this is the yeah. version that is. I mean, literally, you yeah. up there like you're performing <laughs> for the rotoscoping, right? Yeah, it's tough to make it more personal. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I know that you guys have talked about doing this as a series still and having more of these, um, mm-hmm. but I assume this would be the most personal. Like, there aren't more personal stories that are coming to the screen from you, at least not yet. Well, I can't. I don't know. Uh. I mean, yes, <laughs> sure. Uh, no, this is all I can say. But if, if, you know, if we get to keep making more of these, one of the things that's fun is everybody has a year of dicks. And so, you know, it's, I don't, and I mean that in that, there's this moment when people are like, oh, this made me remember this thing I had kind of pushed mm-hmm. aside and, and decided not to think about it anymore. And 
that feeling of here, I don't have to, I didn't even know I was carrying this here. <laughs> yeah. Take it. Uh, that's so rewarding. And, and I couldn't have anticipated that here. Yeah. Um, if that, and that feels more, well, that's more important. And, and so that's what I'm striving for is if there are more stories about these as personal as they are, they really are so that someone else goes, okay, good. <laughs> Cause yeah. that's how I first felt when I finished it and people liked it. I was like, oh, okay, good. Um, last question. I let you go. Do you have your Oscar plans yet? Do you have your tickets? Like, what's the what's the lead up to the, to that part of it? No. Well, in the I'm taking it day by day. I will say <laughs> I really don't try to think past my to do list of today. And uh, <laughs> when we hang up, I'll be like, "What's next?" Oh, I'm 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 writing. I have things to. Um, no, we don't have our. I don't know. We don't know how. Like, again. <laughs> You have to scroll like four times on your phone to get to best animated short film. <laughs> and that is about where we are, um, you know, told things. That's okay. I get it. Again, hanging on to the back. Yep. <laughs> just being like, wee! I don't even have a purse. Like, just see what you can do. I'm so happy. Um, no, I don't know what I'm wearing. I, I, I don't know where I'm sitting. I don't know anything. Uh and that's okay because I'm I'm the person who never wants the last Christmas present opened. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with we don't know things yet. Yeah, It'll be all right. yeah. That morning after, I think even for me, who's you know not nominated, just gets to go do all this stuff. You're like, well, now what? Yeah, now <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. That was so fun. It's so fun. And this is uh, yeah. So the next few weeks are more like me standing very near Kate Blanchett, who doesn't know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's my shoots and ladders that I'm playing. I'm like. There she is. Oh no, I'm way over here again. I think she would like my year of dicks. I really like she might I mean she's an academy Thank member. You. I hope she gets you know, they got they gotta get to watching. So she'll yeah, she'll, maybe she'll let you know. <laughs> I, she'll let someone know. It, it probably won't be me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if she wants to, yes, let's have coffee and talk about her year of dicks. I'm all in. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back with our regular roundtable conversation on Thursday. In the meantime, find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. And David? David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Little Goldmen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little Goldmen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash Little Gold Men. From PRX.